0: ComC is excited to announce their latest partnership with CGC Trading Cards and CSG. With over 30 million raw cards available in our marketplace, ComC is ready to provide an effortless grading experience for you to buy, sell, and now grade your Marvel, Sports, Star Wars, and TCG trading cards. ComC is thrilled to offer a smooth and seamless grading experience that is available today for all their customers. You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. We are sitting here in episode 212, and we are just continuing to chug along. I'm having a ton of fun doing the podcast, talking about what's on my mind, talking about what's on your mind. That is what we're going to be doing today. We're going to do a listener mailbag question or a listener mailbag segment, whatever you want to call it. We're taking questions from the audience, and that's what I'm going to cover in today's episode. I like to get the the pulse of what is on everybody's mind out there because sometimes I can kind of get in my own little collecting world of the things that are interesting to me, of the topics and the people that I want to have a conversation with. And I like to hear sometimes what is on other people's mind. What are they hearing within the hobby that prompts them to ask a question and want to get additional insight? So that's what I want to cover today. Our first question comes from Ginger Wisdom. He asks if I ever experience hobby fatigue. And he says from time to time he feels himself getting a little burnout. But then eventually he gets sucked back in? And I think that's a great question because I think, depending on the situation, we all experience somewhat, some level of hobby fatigue from time to time. And it can come from a variety of reasons. Sometimes it comes because you can come completely focused and. Everything that you're doing is is about cards. You're buying cards, you're trying to sell cards, you're consuming content. That's all that you're doing. And sometimes you get so wrapped up in the world of cards that you start to lose a little bit of focus and that it just starts to feel a little bit overwhelming. And that's when you can start to feel a little bit of hobby burnout. Other times it can be because you have taken on a project or you've taken on a collecting focus that is super challenging and super difficult and sometimes if if your kind of sense of success and accomplishment is all wrapped up in the achievement of this super difficult task that that can become a little bit overwhelming and you can get a little bit burnout and third i think this might be the thing that i hear most often when it comes to hobby burnout is because we listen to this content we see what videos people are doing And there's a narrative that goes in place about what we should be collecting, what we should be excited about, what is good about the hobby, and what is bad about the hobby. And that doesn't always align with what our personal interests are. And I think when we start to try to take on that persona, when we try to collect the way that other people tell us we should collect, or we try to build a a collection of players or of niches within the hobby that other people say are cool— If we're not passionate about it, the pursuit of those collections is going to lead to burnout because there's no heart in it. And so when we try to do things that don't align with our own interests and our own passions, that can lead to a a level of burnout. And I think that's true whether we're talking about the hobby or whether we're talking about careers or whether we're talking about things outside of the hobby that we may do from time to time or spend our time on. If you're not passionate about it and if your heart's not in it you can only do that for so long before you start to feel some level of burnout so when it comes back to me yeah there's times where i have felt that there's times where i've let um, certain hobby disappointments or there's certain hobby roadblocks that i've run into that have led to me getting a little burned out with the hobby and what i've tried to do in those situations is start with just taking a break There's times where that break might only be a day or two where I am not active on social media or I'm not writing or I'm not working on podcast-related content and I'm doing something completely outside the hobby and that little break allows me to recharge. There's other times where I've had to refocus and say, you know what, I was doing this but I'm not excited about it anymore. I'm going to put that on hold and I am going to try to focus in on things that I am much more interested in. The example that I like to go to that I talked about a few weeks ago on one of the other episodes is within wrestling. I was getting into wrestling cards and I was listening to some of the modern wrestling podcasts and I was trying to collect cards of modern wrestlers from recent releases and I was finding that I was not passionate about these guys. These aren't the characters in wrestling that I have a personal interest in. What can I do? I still want to collect wrestling cards. But you know what? I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to start pursuing some of the vintage and oddball characters and go back to the the Attitude Era and get some rock and Stone Cold, people that I am connected with from when I was passionately watching wrestling. And since I made that pivot, since I went to Norman Smiley and I started to get some of these oddball food issues, I've had a ton of fun collecting wrestling cards again. But I was burnt out trying to collect the, the new guys. But I'm in love with collecting the old vintage um, and kind of the 80s and 90s era wrestlers. And I think that same thing holds true whether you're talking about modern shiny stuff versus vintage. If If you love new players and you love shiny, go after that. But if you love vintage guys and you love cards from the 50s and 60s, don't get sucked in feeling like you've got to collect the new shiny chrome refractor parallel type stuff. Find what you're passionate about, pursue that, and I think that does a lot to hold off this sense of hobby burnout. So I hope that helps a little bit with that question. Hi, this is Pat Hughes, Cubs announcer, coming to you from the Sports Card Shop in beautiful New Buffalo, Michigan. The Goacher family has built an incredible place here for collectors to buy, sell, and trade cards and memorabilia. Be sure to stop by and let them show you around. TheSportsCardShop.com, connecting sports, athletes, the hobby, and collectors around the world. All right. this next question came in via DM, and it says, Here's a situation I came across a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to get your input on it. I was in a local card shop, and in the dollar box was a card that had no business being there. I could have bought it and been on my way, but I went to the shop owner and said to take another look. It was an SSP, and that they were going for some big money. He took my advice, put the card up on eBay, and it sold for $204. I felt good about it, but I could have said nothing and bought it for a buck. What are your thoughts? Is it the seller's obligation to know the card's value, or is it mine to tell them? And I think this is a great question, and I think my answer is that it's kind of a gray area, and the answer is it depends. As a seller, I feel like it is my obligation to price my cards appropriately. If I want to underprice a card... I have that that right. If I want to overprice a card and let it sit there, that's my right. And if I'm going to put cards out for sale, I feel like that is my obligation as a seller to price it appropriately. And if the price changes and uh, a buyer comes in and he finds an opportunity to have some some margin and to make some money off me or to, to get a great deal, then then that's, that's fine. That's on me for, for pricing it the way that I priced it. I think that as a buyer if you find one of those situations I don't think there's anything wrong with letting the seller know hey you might want to take a look at this it, it it might be worth a little bit more and so I think you know if you feel better about that if you feel like that's too big of a bargain if you feel like that is too big of an error on the seller's part that you want to point that out. I think that is noble. I think that is honorable. But I would not say that as a buyer, you would be required to do that or that you would be doing something unethical if you buy that dollar card in that dollar box, even though it is an SSP or it is some kind of, of card that is worth um, a, a lot more value. Now, the, the exception, and this is why I say it depends, the exception to that rule is there are times when there are boxes out at a shop or at a show that here's a $20 box, here's a $5 box, here's a dollar box, here's a quarter box, and the cards are priced within that that range, but from time to time, cards get misplaced, and a $20 card gets slotted back into a dollar box. Now, if you found a 20 or $30 card sitting in a dollar box, and it should be in that $20 box, it's priced at $20. But just because somebody put it in the wrong spot, you find it in a dollar box and you say, oh, look, hey, shop owner, I found uh, 10 cards here in the dollar box. Here's 10 bucks. Even though it is clearly in the wrong spot, I think that is a situation where it would be unethical to pay a dollar. When it's priced at 20, it's intended to be in that $20 box. Somebody just stuck it in the wrong spot. So that would be one of those situations where... If if that's the way it played out, I think you as a buyer would have that um, obligation, or it would be a more ethical decision to point that out and and not try to get that twenty dollar card for a dollar. So a little bit of a give and take there. I can see different perspectives on this question. Some people would say right off the bat. You know, there's there's too much of a of a deal buying a, a two hundred dollar card for a dollar because somebody didn't know that they had a, a short print or a super short print. At the same time, I think it is the dealer's responsibility to know what they have to price their own cards. And if they didn't do the the time and the research that it would take to understand that they've got a short print and they put it in a dollar box intending to sell it for a dollar, then that's on them as well. I'd love to know what you guys think on this one because I can see arguments on both sides. And finally, the last question that I want to address today came via email. It was from somebody who is going to be setting up at a local card show in the near future. And he asked about my approach to setting prices for my lower end cards. He wanted to make sure that he set a, a fair but competitive price for his lower end singles that he was wanting to sell and and was asking the way that I do it, the approach that I take to make sure that I'm pricing things where I'm not short selling myself, but at the same time I'm pricing them so that they are a good deal for the buyer and that I'm going to be able to, to make some sales and move some inventory. So I thought I would spend a couple minutes talking about my approach for pricing my lower end cards. And I'm not saying that this is the only way to do it or this is the right way to do it. I just shared my perspective on what has worked for me over these last several years, four or five years setting up at shows and then over the last three years running the card shop on the weekends. So the way that I price lower end cards is I put them into big chunks, right? So I've got quarter boxes where everything that doesn't have a sticker on it is 25 cents and then within those boxes that are organized by player or team, depending on the sport, I will sometimes price cards at 50 cents, a dollar, or two dollars. I don't get down into 75 cents. I don't get a dollar twenty-five. I don't get a dollar seventy-five. I don't get super nitty-gritty like that. I kind of chunk them up into 25 cents, 50 cents, $1, $2, $3, $5. And I will mix those all into my organized boxes. But I will often default to the lower end of those things because my goal is to move cards to sell cards, not to just sit there and accumulate inventory. I want to move through things. And so what I will typically do is I will take superstar base and insert cards and I will price them at 50 cents or a dollar. But all of the regular stars, the semi-stars, some local teams... Named players, players you've heard of, those just go in there at a quarter for these base and insert cards and kind of parallels that are, are non-numbered. They're just going to be a quarter. And then if you start to get into some rookies and rookie parallels and things like that, that's when I start to get into the $2, $3, $5 type range for those rookies and serial numbered cards of these superstars. But I will often price cards at a quarter that you're gonna be able to find for a dollar or two dollars online. I'll price cards at a dollar that you can find for three, four, five dollars online because I wanna move through things. And if I'm able to buy them in a bulk collection and it ends up costing me a nickel or something like that, 10 cents when you factor in everything else, I'm okay moving that for a dollar, even though if I really wanted to grind out, Every, every nickel a profit, I could probably price it at 2 to $3. And so my answer was, it really depends if your primary focus is to maximize your return, to maximize your profit, even if it means you sell more cards, or if your goal is to move through this inventory so that you can get as much funds as possible at that show to be able to use for other things. And so you just got to think a little bit about what your primary focus is going to be. Is it to get top dollar, which means you might not sell quite as much, or is it to get a decent profit and also provide a decent deal for your customer and your buyer? And so I try to minimize the time spent. I, I do organize because I think organization is possible. I do have a baseline of prices because I hate going to a show and not knowing what uh, the price of a card is that I'm looking at. But I will bucket them into bigger segments so that it there's a price for the buyer, but it doesn't take me a whole lot of time. And I'm not worrying about looking up every single one of these star base and insert cards to know if it should be $1. twenty-five or a $1.75 or 75 cents. So I try to use big segments to do that. It was a kind of a, a long answer to how I price kind of my low end singles, but I hope that's helpful to some of you out there who might be setting up at a show in the near future. Well thanks to everybody for chiming in asking some questions. I hope all of you out there got a little bit of value out of those answers to those questions. Reach out to me on Twitter. Let me know what you think at The Mike Summer. Send me an email at waxpackhero at gmail.com. I would love to know what you think. You can also find me on TikTok and Instagram at waxpackhero. And come on back next week where I will be having a conversation with Danny Black, the man behind Hobby News Daily. That is going to be launching on April 1st. And we're going to have that conversation during launch week so you can hear more about what the story is behind Hobby News Daily. That's all I've got for you today, so I'll catch you next time.